Hello and welcome back to the podcast. I post episodes weekly on Tuesdays on pretty much whatever I like. So welcome. Follow me on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook and on LinkedIn at a Ugandan babe. All one word. Spotify now has a review feature. So go on, pause the episode, take your time, <laughs> rate and review the podcast on there or on Apple Podcasts and then come back. Thank you. Now, today's episode is a little bit different. Uh, If you follow me on Instagram, which is where I usually share my thoughts on random things, I've been struggling. I struggled with last week's episode, right? It has been flogging me. (laughs) It's one of those topics that's quite deep, quite wide, and um, there's so many angles that wish to come at it. I won't go into the details of that, but it's taking a bit longer than usual. So while I was trying to figure all of that out, I had a conversation with a friend um, about racial justice movements and I decided to record part of those conversations on here. I haven't asked his permission, (laughs) so apologies in advance, but I have said before, um, I will of course keep him as anonymous as I can, but I've said before, I've requested that my listeners only DM me with thoughtful feedback because I put a lot of time and effort into, you know, giving you a thoughtful perspective. You might disagree with me. That's perfectly fine. I welcome that. But I'm assuming that by the time you DM me, you have given thoughtful consideration to your viewpoints. And um, I will try to ask for permission, but when I'm unable to, because now I think he's still sleeping, (laughs) then um, I might ask for forgiveness rather than permission. So this will probably be in two parts because I suspect it will be longer than I hoped. But in the first part, we kind of immediately dive into a discussion about racial justice movements. And then the second part kind of kicks off with a discussion about abortion, but it, it all ties in together. So bear with me if it does feel like it's a little bit all over the place. And in different bits, I'll include voice notes where I got tired of typing and we kind of went back and forth on voice notes. I won't include his voice notes because that will put him on blast. (laughs) Um, But uh, I'll include mine and try and represent him as fairly as I can. So here goes. Just as an intro, the way the conversation started was with um, a story, an Instagram story that I posted, which I will read now. And it goes, every time I hear someone berating the poorest, talking about they should work hard and pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Someone who had at least one parent, a decent education, even attended uni on government sponsorship because their parent could have paid. You have no concept of what it means to be destitute, to have nothing. But every day it's me, I work hard and bootstraps, bootstraps, like one bootstrap bill. So that was my post. And then this friend of mine DM'd me to say, this is a fair take. I fear you deal with exclusively one side of an important social issue. While it may be true that in the West, privilege and skin tone are correlated, it does not follow that there is causality. A lot of people talk about helping the less privileged, like equality is the goal, but will disregard a white person who has less than a black person that qualifies for this help and tell them to use their white skin as the bootstrap. There is a notion that white people cannot be underprivileged and that black people always are. This notion is often left unchallenged. What are your thoughts on it? To which I respond, White people can be underprivileged. Anyone of any race can be underprivileged. I kept it short because (laughs) I don't like to go back and forth in the DMs. And I hoped that that short summary would put his concerns to rest. But he continues. I agree. But saying that is a call to be cancelled. Labeled as a white supremacist alt-right person if you're white. Or as an Uncle Tom if you're black which is why people who speak out about inequality will rarely work to deracialize it. The result is that only the voices that racialize privilege are allowed to speak, and the result is that people are taught that privilege is directly connected to melanin count, 
How does one counter such harmful ideology among black people so that those who actually are privileged can see it and reach their full potential instead of accepting a falsity that they're automatically the underdog because of their skin color? To which I responded with a simple infographic because again, I didn't want to get into it. White privilege doesn't mean your life hasn't been hard. It means that your skin color isn't one of the things making it harder. To which he responded, What is the point in philosophizing and categorizing other people's suffering, if not to minimize it in comparison to our own? If you and I are starving and destitute, should I bring up the fact that as a woman, you got an extra 1.5 points for college, or that people from Western Uganda have more connections for better job prospects? Should you bring up the fact that as a man, I don't have to fear being sexually assaulted and that I have more work options available due to my gender? How does such a discussion between two people in need actually help either of them? It only serves to make them not work together to meet a common need and instead compete with each other for who is more deserving. Now we have underprivileged people in camps with the black people talking about white privilege and the white people talking about affirmative action. Neither of those things help the other camp since they are both in dire straits. So how do those of us with privilege actually help? Instead, we take sides with a group we sympathize with more to speak to the pain of the other group like we know what they actually go through. If we do this, we're not trying to end inequality. White privilege is is race. So he says, white privilege is race-based bootstrapism. It's saying you shouldn't be where you are. Just grab some white privilege and improve your prospects. Leave the aid and programs to those of us who have real strikes against us, not quote imagined ones. To which I responded, at this point I wasn't paying that much attention (laughs) because I think I was out and about um, and I was determined not to be drawn into a long back and forth but I said the people doing the comparison are the ones saying all lives matter when we are specifically trying to address racial inequality to which he responded you don't know anything beyond the words people say you cannot peek into people's motivations To think that someone saying black lives matter also means that they consider all lives as equal is naive. There are feminists who do not believe in equality of the genders, but that men should basically become extinct. Extremists exist in both directions in every important issue. Black supremacists exist and they hijack movements like BLM with impunity because everyone seems to think the oppressed are pure. Not necessarily. While white supremacists can and do say all lives matter, some people know that not everyone who says BLM actually means that all lives matter. So it needs to be said. Again, as a social commentator, you seem to ignore the sins of one side and the virtues of the other side, instead of seeking the balanced truth that is always somewhere in the middle. I know that you don't see eye to eye with Candace O, he means Candace Owens, but she makes one important point. BLM has never once spoken up about gang violence, which claims the lives of significantly more black people than police brutality. Black lives only seem to matter when it can be racialized. To clarify, they are speaking about Cuba and immigration, things that have nothing to do with police brutality but nothing on school shootings, inner city violence, anything that can be racialized but would affect black lives directly. Nothing about how abortion rates are highest among black women. So that's a lot of black babies that will not be born. To which I respond, I can't opine on Black Lives Matter as a movement, which is why I don't present myself as representing anyone except myself. To which he responded, I am surprised you have opined on a lot of things, people and even an entire hashtag movement. Not sure what makes BLM the exception, but I will not press the issue. Now, this 
bears some clarification because he made at least one good point, which is, I misspoke when I said I can't opine on Black Lives Matter as a movement. What I meant was Black Lives Matter as the organization because there are two things. There is the organization which has stated goals, objectives, etc., which I know of, obviously, and um, but I haven't investigated deeply. I don't know the ins and out, out of the organization. And then there's BLM, the movement, which is more like, for lack of a better word, an ideology that's simply saying or trying to advocate for racial justice and equality. Now, those two obviously intersect, but I meant it when I said I do not speak for anyone except myself. There will always be causes that I believe in, but I will always form an opinion for myself and anyone can catch it at any time because if I disagree with a actions or utterances of even a cause or a movement that I believe in, I will say it. Yeah. So I wanted to make that point clear. But I also want to say to the the, the point that he raised about um for example abortion rates, which we'll come back to in, in part two of this episode, I've already spoken about my views on abortion. So a sweeping statement about that, about it being highest among black women, for me lacks nuance. And if you want details on my views on that, please refer to my episode on abortion. Secondly, he makes reference to Candace Owens, another person that I have addressed in a three-part series, probably the hardest one I had to do because I, I didn't enjoy it. I probably enjoyed part one where I talked about Thomas Sowell. Uh, but part two and part three, um, which were more focused on Candace, those were not interesting for me, to be perfectly honest. And I have said everything that I have to say about Candace Owens. I will not be addressing her or her opinions again. <laughs> so moving on. I responded to say, we definitely agree on a lot of things. I have no doubt that many white people suffer extreme poverty that cannot approach anything you can describe as privilege. But that does not negate the truth of racial injustice that we have just this week seen play out in how Africans have been treated in the latest war zone. I'm talking about Ukraine, of course, and all the racism that black Ukrainians or, you know, black people in Ukraine faced. And the bigger and more pervasive problem of war being seen as the purview of the black and brown, when the West so often instigates these wars in pursuit of wealth. Two truths can stand at the same time, that white people can and do suffer destitution, but by every metric, in total, a black person fares worse than anyone else, both given the same set of circumstances, but also due to historical factors that remain relevant to this day because they're ingrained in the political and economic systems that run our lives. To which he responds, the treatment of black people at the war zone is an atrocity. Unfortunately, this serves to prove my point. The African continent has been under waves of civil war almost constantly with genocides, refugee crises, famine, poverty and destitution. However, there is more outrage over the treatment of black refugees when the villains are white. Yet by every objective measure, they are nowhere near in as dire straits as refugees from the Darfur conflict, for example. We are desensitized to those refugees, but God forbid a privileged black family is discriminated against by white border officials. The world does the same thing with Hispanic immigrants at the U.S. southern border because it is presumed to be white people keeping them out. Nothing is said about Mexico's southern border because the victims and villains are the same shade of brown. Two truths can stand, but if only one is allowed to be spoken, the other becomes viewed as a lie. The real lie here is that race is the driving factor. It's not. Greed is a driving factor. Some people are greedy for wealth and power and will build systems to ensure they have control. Right now, the architects are white. Centuries ago, they were not. We have forgotten the past and made skin color a mark of vice or virtue. 
The root cause is deeper than that. The gospel message is that all have sinned. Sin isn't more resident in white people over black. In another iteration, it would be black people with systems to oppress whites. In fact, past history shows this was the case during the Ottoman Empire, not to mention the Medo-Persian and Babylonian empires. The Greeks were the first white people to break free of this oppression, and then they and the Romans became the new oppressors. We are equally malevolent. As long as we look at race, we lose the opportunity to actually fix the root cause. That is why the gospel is important, and why in Jesus Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, but we become one. The only way to permanently dismantle systems of oppression is to replace flawed humans of all colors with redeemed ones, changing the very hearts of men so we can love others like ourselves without pointing fingers and judging others as evil and ourselves as good, but seeing the evil equally in all of us so we can all equally find grace and be renewed collectively in Christ. Okay, now I was inside. I don't know what I was doing. I think I was still out and about, but I said, ha, chine keme. Now, I agree with a lot of what he said here. And I began to appreciate this feedback more because I recognized the opportunity to add nuance to my um, stated opinions and views. Because sometimes I may think that I have expressed myself clearly, but maybe sometimes I miss the mark. I would be, I suppose, I would feel disappointed in my ability to express myself if anyone had the impression that I for one minute believe that black people or non-white people are somehow morally better than anyone else because nothing could be farther from the truth. I have stated, I think repeatedly in a number of episodes, that we all have the capacity for good and evil. That is, that should be patently obvious, which is why the movement is called racial equality. It is a call to recognize the same humanity, the same capacity for good and evil in all of us, regardless of race or creed. Yeah, so I appreciate the, the opportunity to make that crystal clear. And hopefully that will become more evident as we continue. So I responded to say, everyone knows about the outrages in Africa and every right thinking person hates but believes wrongly that we are powerless to change it. But this is not unusual or unique to Africa. We are young democracies that have had only 60 plus years to sort our shit out. And we are expected to prove that we are not completely useless against civilizations and democracies that had a chance to develop, go through birth pains, including numerous wars for hundreds of years, mostly uninterrupted. Okay, I added the mostly uninterrupted. (laughs) Before they got where they are. The idea that Africans don't care about what is happening on the continent is a fallacy. Do you care? I assume so. Do I care? Of course. Everyone I know cares, and slowly, with great determination and much pain, we shall make progress. But what is clear is that the West doesn't care. They have weaved a careful narrative that whatever plagues us has nothing to do with them and is our own fault. Ignoring all the systems they have designed to impoverish us, the very greed you describe Forgetting that the planet is too small to house all that greed without repercussions, including the refugee crisis that they so hate. I find it interesting that you are willing to entertain a hypothetical where black people could oppress others and yet want to ignore or downplay the very real racial hatred that is real in our current reality. Do you not see the contradiction? Have you spent any time in white supremacist forums? I had to research some, I had to to research some of my episodes. The hatred there isn't about greed. They hate black people because they believe us to be subhuman, a lesser species. I'm sure there are more sophisticated racists who are driven by greed, but the outcomes are the same, so does it really matter? 
And when you speak of the gospel, do you not know Christians who are raging racists? A huge swathe of American evangelicals are raging racists who proudly speak of the evils of race mixing. So what are you talking about exactly? I was getting heated, (laughs) as I do sometimes. So he says, please hear me. I did not say Africans don't care. I'm talking about the outrage that is expressed. In our minds, it is worse when we are mistreated by white people than when we mistreat our own. That is a direct result of the racialization of everything. Suffering is suffering. Discrimination is discrimination. Wrong is wrong. We have somehow chosen that it's worse when the villain and victim are different shades, and that is absolutely not true. I'm also not condoning hypotheticals and ignoring reality. The reality I espouse is that we are equally capable and guilty of atrocity. People of color against other people of color and against whites. Whites against other whites and against people of color. That is the reality of human history. You said the West doesn't care. Who is the West? Talk about a broad brush. These are people. We don't want to be treated as a monolith, so we cannot commit the same sin. If by the West you mean powerful individuals who build these structures, yes, they don't care. But not because we're black. They don't care because they only care about themselves and their power and wealth. They don't care about white people or black people. It's not about race for them. The white supremacist rednecks in the Louisiana Bayou aren't the ones building structures, nor are they benefiting from them because they're white. The two categories of people are not the same. There's some overlap because of individual ideas, but they're not the same categories. You say I ignore reality, but the genocides in Rwanda and China didn't have race attached to them. The millions killed in the war between India and Pakistan didn't involve race, not to mention almost every civil war in the history of humanity. The common thread was hatred for another, and each found an excuse for hate. For some, it was skin. For some, it was tribe. For some, it was religious or political affiliation. That is the reality. This focus on race as the primary motivation is myopic and simplistic, And it looks like instead of accepting that in God's eyes we are all equally guilty, it's easier to find someone else worse and blame them, thereby absolving ourselves. This is not the Christian worldview. And I fear you have bought into a narrative that runs in direct opposition to the gospel. Obviously, this is how the world thinks, but it's certainly not the biblical viewpoint. If anyone has the mindset of a racist, are they Christian? Have you really allowed this absurd notion to even taint what defines a believer in the risen Christ? Either you believe the ground is level at the cross, or you don't. Either you believe we are in equal need of a savior, or you don't. And once you accept the biblical view for the origin of this world's brokenness, then it ceases to be about race. Again, I am not discounting anything. I am in full agreement with you on the atrocities committed. I thoroughly disagree that it is racially motivated at the root because the same and worse atrocities are committed by all races against their own as well. I do think the powerful people in those places of influence absolutely benefit from this red herring of race. That way they are not the target of the outrage. Let the peasants fight among themselves and blame each other. To which I responded, let's discuss in person. Both our points are getting lost in translation. Maybe it should be a podcast conversation. (laughs) And here we are. I go on to say, out of curiosity, why did that particular post trigger this discussion? It was referencing all people, all poor people, regardless of race or creed. To which he responds, two truths but only one can be said, which makes the other seem like a lie. The conversations around the word privilege are often so tied up to conversations about race that they are subconsciously conflated. I'll be honest, I do not think you racist or prejudiced in any way because I know you personally. 
However, if I were to go purely by what you have posted, I cannot come away without thinking you're biased against the white race. Not some white people, but the white race. And so when you post about privilege, that plus the impression from everything else leads me to believe that you are more concerned with a specific demographic of the poor, not all poor people, regardless of race or creed. And so I probed to see where you stood. You share the one truth clearly, loudly and proudly. The other, though, you do not. Unintentionally, you appear to perpetuate the idea that privilege and race are linked by causality, not merely correlation in certain parts of the world. Also, I like to challenge you because you help, you help keep me from veering too far to the right. Of course, you may think I'm pretty much already there, but I think you're too much of the left and haven't anyone to help with the balance except for perhaps me. <laughs> Piss off. <laughs> okay, that made me laugh. Um, he goes on to say, that's to say, I try to remain balanced. I listen to a lot of people on the ride, by the way, but maybe it doesn't come through. Anyway, I agree we should discuss in person. This is still him. A good place to start would be to share how your worldview is shaped by your faith or if your faith has evolved because of your worldview. I'm assuming a lot of things here about your faith, your view of scripture and its application. If we can start with that understanding, it would be helpful. This coming from a guy who has jumped from Anglicanism, Anglicanism, hmm, Anglicanism, <laughs> the word has played me, to Pentecostalism, to agnosticism, to atheism, to Southern Baptist, to broad church Anglicanism. I'm not qualified to determine what faith is right for anybody else. So please do not be concerned that I will be trying to convert you into anything. Promise. <laughs> and I said, let's discuss in person. I now consider myself to be left of the center and I'm definitely not racist against anyone, but I have seen and experienced enough actual racism to have lost patience with mincing words. So I know that sometimes when I address white people, it sounds harsh, but I think they've been coddled enough. And I'm definitely fed up with the prejudice and intolerance often exhibited by Christian evangelicals. And he says, I'd suggest putting the broad brush back down, but who am I kidding? <laughs> okay, so that brings us to the end of part one. Um, in part two, I will, I will address in a bit more detail some of the very valid points that he raised. And some of that will include voice notes we exchanged at the time. Um, again, I will not include his voice notes just because I want to keep him anonymous and he might be easily recognized. But I will try to represent his viewpoints as fairly as I can. So see you in part two. Now, it turns out there will actually be a part three because the second part of the conversation is the one that picks up a discussion on abortion. And then in part three, we will wrap up the discussion on racial injustice. Part two is still relevant because that's when I answered some of the questions that he raised in part one. So please bear with me. So in part two, it begins with a tweet that I saw on Twitter on March 10th. And it says, a bill in Missouri makes illegal to get an, an abortion if the patient has an ectopic pregnancy. Facts about ectopic pregnancies. One, they're not viable, full stop. Two, they are the number one cause of death for first trimester patients. So I sent him that tweet um, because I wanted to get his, his thoughts on that because obviously he had raised the abortion question in part one and he responds interesting what are your thoughts on this bill and her reaction to it to which i say i am pro-choice i'm deeply against abortion because i believe majority of women don't want to be in that position i certainly don't plus i don't know when life begins but I don't believe in imposing my beliefs on adult, self-determining humans who are making choices about their own health. This bill is tyrannical and draconian. Imagine outlawing abortion in the case of an ectopic pregnancy, which is not viable, 
and will more than likely kill the mother. To which he responds, I appreciate your nuance. It seems like to most people, pro-choice means you're against life and pro-life means you are against choice. It's more complex than that and I think your position reflects this. I'll take it in pieces. First, to the law itself. I think it is wrong to effectively outlaw a medical procedure that is needed to save a person's life. I know the dangers of ectopic pregnancies. I believe that they are one of few, I'm pro-life, one of few exceptions where termination of pregnancy is actually necessary, not just desirable. On the legal side, I'm wary to call any law draconian or tyrannical if it is made by duly elected officials chosen in a system that is free and fair. The American system of checks and balances means no one arm of government has all the power. Even at the state level, bills must pass both the House, representatives of popular opinion, and the Senate, representing long-term stability, and then be signed into law by the popularly elected governor. If a bill like this passes, it is the will of the governed by any objective measure. Obviously, there's a losing side to any election, but they cannot call a law tyrannical because it wasn't their desired outcome. And then he goes on to say, I am pro-life, which means I believe life begins at conception, which means willful, frivolous termination of that life is an atrocity. If the mother's life is in danger, then she should be saved. Otherwise, the duty of the state is to protect the most vulnerable, and there is none more vulnerable than an unborn child. Of course, no law is perfect, and there are cases where untold psychological harm is done to a woman who carries certain pregnancies to term, say, as a result of sexual abuse or incest, or where it is known that the child will be born with life-threatening defects. Hopefully, one day technology will allow gestation outside of a woman's body. But until then, death of the unborn is not the path to be chosen, to save the mother from anything other than her own life being at stake, in my honest opinion. Before I get to my response, (laughs) technology allowing gestation outside the woman's body sounds like hell on earth. With the exception of mothers who can't physically carry and want to, just sounds like a factory for reproduction, which can be severely abused. Anyway, now, in response to his point about laws being um, put in place by the majority and therefore not being tyrannical, I responded, that's like saying slavery can't have been tyrannical because it was the will of the majority. Laws enacted by democratically elected officials can and are often tyrannical. And to his point about being pro-life, I said, that's your very valid opinion, but you don't know with certainty that life begins at conception. In fact, I personally believe that life begins before conception. And he said, the blacks didn't participate in the electoral exercise, so the laws were a tyranny against them. Also, this would be a point that supports the pro-life cause since the unborn don't have a voice or a vote and they're the ones whose lives are at stake. So he, con- he considered my point because I asked him to concede my point um, because I said, so you agree that laws enacted by the majority can indeed be tyrannical? And he agreed with that. And... But he goes on to say, fair, but laws can change in an environment where the people have the power. The Great American Experiment in this case even allows for people to choose the laws by moving to a state that legislates in in line with their own beliefs. And he also defends his worldview about life beginning at conception, saying, my worldview in this is based on my understanding of scripture. I don't know for certain, but my faith rests on what the word says. Frankly, this is the only basis of the pro-life stance to my mind. And he asked me to elaborate on my position that I personally believe that life begins before conception. But before I get to that, because that's a voice note, I say to him, pro-lifers are forcing their worldview that life begins at conception on people who do not agree. All this is based on belief in something which is a matter of opinion, provided someone is making choices about their own body, 
as opposed to another independent living being. This amounts to tyranny, is my view. I'll, I'll read out his, his response to that because I think it's worth making that clear. So he says, there's a lot here. Not all pro-lifers think government should legislate on the issue. The pro-life stance itself is independent of that, just as pro-choice stance is independent of personally liking or agreeing with the act of termination. To use your analogy of slavery, should there be consensus of opinion before people can be motivated enough to determine legislative action? Those who hold the pro-life stance weigh choice against life of an unborn child and feel like if one must be sacrificed at the expense of the other, it is the former. Pro-choice, pro-choices think it's the latter. However, the two stances are not equal. For one side, the consequence is murder of a child. For the other, the consequence is if you get pregnant, there are lots of ways in 95% of cases to avoid this. You have to carry the child to term. I don't know where he got his statistics. I would say I need a source. And he goes on to say, the unborn child is not under the term their own body. If living independently was a requirement to receive rights, then we may as well kill disabled and comatose people. And finally, if you don't like the law, if you really like the idea of being able to get an abortion anytime, there are states that allow for that. You can move to those states like California or New York. Similarly, pro-life people who think the state is sanctioning mass slaughter of babies, I'm being deliberately melodramatic because people do think this, can move to another state like Missouri or Texas. Perhaps the tyranny is in living in a state where the will or the electorate has been expressed against you, but you decide it must be overruled to your own opinion. And he makes it clear that he's using you and your to a hypothetical pro-choice woman living in Missouri and calling this law tyrannical, not to me personally. I get it. Um, I think there is room for debate in everything that he has just stated. Um, and But I think my position on abortion remains clear. The thing that I want to highlight here is I'll include... A voice note where I'm expounding on my belief that life begins before conception. And again, I don't know when conception begins. I'm a Christian, so I'm inclined to believe it's at least at conception. But actually, I believe that it is before. So I will include that for anyone interested. And then in part three, we will wrap up the discussion about racial injustice. I think the best way to summarize it is uh, I've been open about how I went through a really tough time um, about a year ago. Well, it was over a period, but I've been I've been doing well for maybe a year now. But I was severely depressed, severely, severely depressed. And I, I can say many things about how and why I came out of that. Some of it was just practical tips, tools, etc., Another part of it was definitely God, uh, but a product of that entire journey is is something that I'm still finding the language for. But sometimes you'll hear people, especially New Agers, I think they use this kind of language. It's, it's the one that is the most accessible to me at the moment, so I use that. But it's like you come to a, a higher consciousness, and I hope that doesn't sound woo-woo, but um, there are things that didn't make any kind of sense to me before that now I just kind of see quite differently so maybe one good example is is something that's not even directly related to any talk at any and actually it is I was going to say talk of consciousness but one of the things that has always really troubled me is this thing about you know evil and why people um, can be so cruel to others and especially innocent people especially young children and for a long time that caused me a lot of anguish and I think is is part of the reason why actually for a time I lost my faith because I really couldn't concern myself to how a god that was good couldn't um, you know could allow everything that's bad happen etc and I remember one day when I was having a particularly difficult time, this was just a few months ago, two, three months ago, and um, I, I prayed to God and I was, I was, I felt myself spiraling. So I'd been going through um, 
a really a good run i'd had a number of months where i was just doing amazing so i'd had a few months where i was doing really really well i felt you know my mood was stable i was optimistic um i was excited about life i was i was thriving and then um i i listened to an episode of oprah's where you know people came in and talked about having been abused as children and it completely completely derailed me i was crying i was in, i was in so much pain and i felt like i was spiraling again and i didn't feel like anything could pull me out of that funk and i was i was getting angry with god and i was saying what well, what was the point of bringing me to a good place for me to now be derailed by something that is is just so generally like I'm feeling pain but what about all the children that are being hurt and I remember I was just about to go to sleep and usually I will maybe watch something to soothe me or to that will be boring enough to send me to sleep but that night I wasn't even in the mood for it but for whatever reason I just said ah let me try and watch something on Netflix and then I'll fall asleep and then I landed on this movie which is not my cup of tea at all it's something that I would not click on in a million years and you might have heard of it it's called The Shark and it's a movie that tells the story of a father who loses his child in some tragic circumstances and it it does try to answer the question about whether God is good and how he's good and how any of this makes sense the point is I had had no hope no hope at all that anything could answer the question or give me any kind of peace because of the horrible horrible things I'd had in this Oprah interview and that movie is a very basic movie it's nothing fancy it's low budget it's even a bit corny but somehow by the grace of god it answered that question right and i i, I remember feeling an intense peace and then i fell asleep I, and I tell that whole long story just to say that in the past year, there are a lot of things that have happened that, uh, you know, just dovetail perfectly with my understanding of Christianity and the scripture and, and God. But there are other things that are different that kind of transcend all of that and that tell me that it's even bigger than that, that when often as Christians, we have put God in this little box of dogma. And yet God is the God of everything. He's the God of every color, creed, and persuasion. And that's not to say he condones evil or whatever. It is to say that he is God. And part of understanding and embracing that consciousness is understanding that we are all connected to him. This is where it gets very new agey and very woo-woo. But you know we come from something we come from the source which is god and therefore we are before we are born and even when we die and sometimes even when we die a horrible death that doesn't seem to align with what god intended all of that is in god's plan and indeed he works it out for good he comforts us he cares he looks out for us i hope that made sense <laughs> Welcome back. I will begin part three by rehashing a message from part one, just so you can follow the thread. And it says, this is him re uh, responding. You said the West don't care. Who is the West? Talk about a broad brush. These are people. We don't want to be treated as a monolith, so we cannot commit the same sin. If by the West you mean powerful individuals who build these structures, yes, they don't care. But not because we're black. They don't care because they only care about themselves and their power and wealth. They don't care about white people or black people. It's not about race for them. The white supremacist rednecks in the Louisiana Bayou aren't the ones building structures, nor are they benefiting from them because they're white. The two categories of people are not the same. There are some overlap because of individual ideas, but they're not the same categories. You say I ignore reality, but the genocides in Rwanda and China didn't have race attached to them. The millions killed in the war between India and Pakistan didn't involve race, not to mention almost every civil war in the history of humanity. 
Now, I definitely thought that was worth addressing and I will include the voice note where I did. Um, but just before that, I wanted to be clear about the definition of racism that I was talking about. And it is one that says racism is prejudice combined with social and institutional power. And I said to him, this is the version of racism that racial justice advocates are concerned with. Other injustices are valid but separate issues that ought to be addressed. But imagine if Martin Luther King Jr. had also All Lives Mattered his campaign. Good morning. So I had a lot of thoughts about this exchange, but it, it was... I felt like there was too much to say, which is why I kept my responses short. But I did, this one did stay with me and I wanted to address address some key points. Um, so when you raise the question about uh, when I say the West, now language is a complex thing. I do try to be precise when I, you know, when I speak on the podcast or wherever, but at the end of the day, language is limited. But I do always try to speak contextually so that if you've been following, or if you've been listening, if you're listening closely, you can connect the dots. Yeah. When I say the West, I never mean entire countries and continents of people. No. I, when I speak about racism specifically, I'm talking about structures. I'm talking about systems. I do not care one bit about the rednecks in the Louisiana Louisiana Bayou. I don't. <laughs> if they want to be hateful, when I say I don't care, I mean you 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 put it precisely. These are not people directly with power to disenfranchise anyone. And yet that is what racism is. Yeah. People like to think that racism is being called a nignog, you know, a nigger, whatever. Listen, it that is unpleasant. But I'm not concerned about that, yeah. And when we, when people are advocating for racial equality, of course that comes in. But that is the least of our worries. What we are talking about is the systems which are built that um, disenfranchise people on the basis of race. And you've said that the what are the words you used? The powerful individuals who build these structures, um, they're doing it not because we're black. <laughs> one that is debatable the ones who um enacted the laws that kept black people down during the era of slavery and jim crow certainly did it because we were black it might not have been their primary motivation but they um harnessed and they weaponized the differences in race to keep one group down so that they could benefit but the race, the idea of race did come into it. And even today, you're making assumptions that because someone is in a position of power or educated, that they are beyond the capacity to hate on the basis of color and you are deeply, deeply mistaken. I'm not saying that that is the, the primary motivator of all of them, but I don't know if it's even most of them, but it's certainly some of them. I am not concerned about the poor man in the Louisiana Bayou. I, 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 you know, he has enough worries and he might call people nignogs every once in a while. But, you know, honestly, shrug, who cares? I'm worried about those who are in a position of power who can and do perpetrate injustice using race differences as a convenient cudgel. Everything else you've said, of course, is valid. The wars on the Asian continent and, and um, in Africa that are... Um, and, you know, you say it's nothing to do with race, but I, the, the war in Rwanda, the genocide in Rwanda, has its genesis in the divide-and-conquer policy of the Belgians, who elevated Tutsi over Hutu, yeah? Who... Um, uh, who uh, favored Tusi over Hutu and sowed that hatred between those two groups so that they could divide and conquer. And that's not every... In some cases, we do hate each other, you know, for things other than race. But I'm talking about racial inequality. We can have that conversation. It's a valid conversation. 
but the the racial equality movement the racial justice movement is very much about race responds by saying I'll preface by saying I agree with literally everything you said here anything I'd hem and haw about would be semantics and pedantic but can safely be ignored for the sake of the bigger picture on which we agree I submit this is not the thrust of where our disagreement lies my stance is that racial justice movements focus on the racial motivations to the exclusion of everything else so much so that in their world view race is the primary cause of the world's ills i say it's bigger than that and that even if we were all the same shade the world would be exactly the same place the systems are bad yes but not slaughter millions of people bad they are designed to keep certain individuals most of whom are a certain race economically dominant over others we're talking genocide and war millions of death the vast majority of which are perpetrated by people with the same skin tone these differences may have been instigated by the powerful but we know from history that it did not necessarily need the spark of the colonizer to flame wars like this the colonialists took advantage of what was already present what i'm saying is this if your interest is to help humanity move forward a focus on racial equality is doomed to fail because even among people of the same race the same if not worse atrocities occur that is why i think the gospel is mankind's hope blm will not produce the results we all hope for racial justice is a bandaid at best Its best case outcome is to make all the races equal in power so that the interracial violence is more equitable. Let's raise the profile and power of black people so black on white atrocities are equal to white on black oppression. That's the only equality racial justice will bring. And again, how do I know this? Because far worse happens within the same race. The structures are irrelevant in light of the true suffering in terms of actual loss of life whose cause is a sickness of the heart. MLK's message was this. America was built on principles of equality. These are good principles. We call on America to hold true to what it was founded on. His whole message was that all lives matter and because of that black lives matter. Now He included a voice note which may be repetitive but um I'll only include it if he gives me permission because I think there were some good points in there but I'd like to <laughs> the point that he says about America was built on principles of equality is a lie from the pit of hell for those of you who have not been poisoned by the idea that critical race theory is um a tool by which civilization will be destroyed you'll have had of Nicole Hannah Jones who has expounded on this topic in great detail because this is a rewriting of history this is a white washing of history when america was founded black men and women were not equal and that was enshrined in the law the constitution bill of rights whatever you want to call it yeah we were not equal so the idea that america was founded on a principle of equality is a lie is a racist lie. So none of this to to give any impression that I'm against racial justice movements or against social justice movements and I know that in our conversations especially on blueprint I I definitely give off that vibe um when I talk about wokeism and all that in a I will admit kind of a, a derogatory way but the reason for it is not because i'm against their stated goals or the outcomes that they try to achieve i am all for that and actually i i have to say that a lot of people on the right um ignore this as something that's i think really central to the gospel right they're against um um like this redistribution of wealth and giving to the poor and and all that 
because you know they're so fixated on personal responsibility and so uh to to that specific thing i would say when when john the baptist for instance um appeared on the scene and he's preparing the way for the messiah and people are asking him what should we do and i think this is re- re- recorded in in the first chapters of luke and they're like what should we do and to one group he says give give to the poor right to another group what should we do to the soldiers do not covet more than your pay you know so there are elements of actual giving and this is all seen in in the early church when nobody regarded what they had as their own but pooled it all together so that those who didn't have enough would have you know so really it is a model of of socialism yeah the the only caveat here would be that is just a temporary thing you know it it doesn't help in the long run and this is my thinking in in terms of the gospel it doesn't help in the long run if everybody's equal in terms of wealth but then uh their souls are still in jeopardy right that doesn't help anybody and so the gospel cannot just be giving to the poor or bringing about racial equality and social justice all of which are important things but this world is temporary is the idea behind the gospel so we'll have this utopian society that is all doomed to fail anyway when people's souls are are you know so what does it gain the world what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul so my my only issue with the social justice movements and racial justice movements is that that is all they focus on right and then there's some um christians or gospel people who focus on that as well forgetting the most important thing that there is actually something more at stake than creating a utopian society in this world there's the health of people in the next world and what's actually going to last for eternity and that is usually pushed to the side and forgotten so if our end goal is to get the maximum good for people the focus should be on what's going to happen to their eternal souls but the balance not forgetting what's happening here and so yes social justice and racial justice and trying to build systems of equality right but not at the expense or not lo- looking at that as the end goal and it seems to me it feels to me that a lot of the social justice movements and racial movements that are outside of uh what we would call gospel centered ministries that is their own goal and that is their focus and if that is their world view a lot of the times they're like well screw the gospel right now that is that is seen as something that is divisive like let's let's not tell people about the gospel because we don't want to push them away we don't want to to create the haves and have nots quote unquote spiritually everything is equal let's bring equal economic outcomes let's bring equal racial outcomes and also foist some kind of equal spiritual outcome as well and i think that that is that in itself is a huge huge mistake it compromises the gospel and that's where i'm against the idea of no vocalism i'm i'm all for i'm all for uh, i'm putting a, a um, voice note for oh, sonia i'm i'm all for <laughs> i am i'm all for these uh social improvements as what follows the gospel not what not something that's as apart from it because then i i think it's missing something important and i'm also against the whole idea of the gospel without the social uh, aspect of it so how do we find that balance i don't know but that's that's what i'm hoping for and that's what i'm looking for um uh, as the so- the actual solution for the world um something which is uh, social justice and racial equality that is um as a result of or that springs from the world view of the gospel if that makes any sense so i've responded i think we are mostly agreed 
I think my main rebuttal is that the first and foremost way for the world to know that we are Christians is by how we live our lives and not preaching at the street corner. The former, to my mind, is 100% more effective. Christians are often hell-bent on proclaiming their faith without acting like it. So little compassion and love, just dogma. To which he responded, and this is where we will end it, Again, I would agree to a point. There is also the tension of not being friends with the world and ultimately the fact that the world will not approve because of the gospel being offensive. The neighbor is nice and kind, but fuck him because he calls me to repentance and holiness. Who made him my judge? The world has no problem recognizing Christians, so that's not a motivation. And also, ultimately, it's the Holy Spirit who draws people to Christ, not the quote-unquote attractiveness of the Christian lifestyle. But I do take your point. It doesn't matter how much a local church commits to social justice and equality for all under the law. Giving to the poor, ETC. The moment they say abortion is murder, any good they do is ignored and immediately they are religious nuts trying to control women's bodies. The moment they say sex is designed to be, uh, by God to be between man and woman in matrimony, down with those backwards thinking homophobes. On the flip side, to your point, Jesus himself said, by this the world will know you are my disciples. The way we love one another not the conviction in our preaching. And that's where we'll end, end the conversation for today. As always, thanks for listening. Please give us a like and a follow, and I'll see you next time. Thank you.